Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film Squawk. A Wrinkle in Time. Directed by Ava DuVernay. 2018. Hello, hello. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm Rochelle Robinson, and joining me are Stacey Reynolds and Cassidy Brooks. Hello. In this podcast, we will first look at our yays and nays. We will suggest three reasons to see this film and three reasons to perhaps not see this film. Next, we will work into our squawk. This is where we're going to talk about what stood out to us, themes, things that really bothered us, and just generally talk your ear off. Finally, we're going to look at takeaways, things we want to remember moving forward about this film or film in general. After discovering her risk-taking astrophysicist father is being held prisoner deep into the universe by an evil entity, Meg Murray and her little brother, Charles Wallace, venture across distant planets, encountering friendship, self-realization, and a giant piece of flying kale to rescue him. Okay, let's hear three reasons to see this film. Cassidy, what's your reason? I love the general theme of the film, which is love, and for all of the glitter. That's it. A lot of sparkly glitter. Stacy, You're a 12-year-old girl. And my reason to see this film is to finally see a vision of the Tesseract realized on screen. All right, so three reasons maybe we wouldn't recommend this film. Stacy. You are not a 12-year-old girl. Cassidy? You're expecting high realism in the CG and not a children's movie. Hashtag not Avatar. Hashtag not Avatar. And for me, it's more like an afternoon jaunt, the entire film, than a journey, uh, unlike its source material. DuVernay, correct? DuVernay. Before we move on, DuVernay. 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 Maybe I shall say it like that. No. So, A Wrinkle in Time is the first live action feature directed by a woman of color that had a budget over $100 million, correct? Correct. And it's currently battling with Black Panther. Like, it's, we're in the middle of making history right now. So amazing. Like, it's amazing, right? It's incredible to witness. I could not be happier. In its first weekend, uh, Wrinkle made $33 million, um, second to Panthers $41 million in its fourth weekend, which is just crazy. Um, Wrinkle needs to make $400 million uh, worldwide, but it was trending exactly how they expend- expected for the first weekend. So that's exciting. Um, some other aspects of Wrinkle aren't panning out the way I think that they anticipated, but I'm excited to dig into that. Um, and what's so interesting to me is that when Wrinkle was first acquired and first dreamed up and written, um, well, ad- ad- adapted, actually, it was going to be made for $35 million. Wow. Oh really? Yes. I would love to know, like, a comparable as far as the budget goes for that. Like, yeah. You know, they actually were likening it to Bridget Terabithia uh, mm. because Jeff Stockwell wrote the first draft in 2010, and he he wrote Bridge to Terabithia. And so they were, it, Bridge was definitely less than 30 million. But uh, yeah, they were amping it up just a smidge for Wrinkle at 35 million. But then to have it now be a film that was $103 million in the making, that's quite a substantial leap. And Ava herself, this was quite a big jump for her. Um, she obviously has made some 
films that everyone knows about, Selma, 13th. Um, she won at Sundance for Best Directing for Middle of Nowhere in 2012. So she's been rising, and she definitely has a point of view. Yeah, and I mean, it makes perfect sense in watching her past work why she would decide to take on this project. Um, Wrinkle in Time was one of the most banned books of all time, by the way. Like the actual book is one of the most frequently banned books. And... Well, I mean, Madeline Langle, correct? Yes. She was turned down by, what, 29 Mm -hmm. publishers before finally finding a home for Wrinkle back in 1962. Yeah. Yeah. And she was just, like, obsessed with cosmology. And, yeah, one of my favorite quotes I found by her was, one cannot discuss structure in writing without also discussing structure in all life. Ooh. Boom. (laughs) Dang, girl. Um, Yeah. But in seeing 13th, and Selma, and I went back and watched Selma again after seeing Wrinkle. Yeah, it just makes so much sense why, number one, people would put this project in the hands of DuVernay, but also why she would be really excited to take it on because really it is a multicultural story. The way they chose to cast it is amazing. I don't know. I just feel like it's another like step in a direction of a conversation she's been trying to bring to the table for a long time in her career. That's interesting that you say that um, her past work makes her an excellent candidate because I actually felt the opposite in some ways. Um, I felt that she was coming from, well, I think she's a commander of realism and a documentarian. And I think she's so interested in seeing, in looking at stories that are shaping the way things are now. Um, And so as far as the genre goes, which is a science fiction fantasy, I don't see uh, really any experience working in that aesthetic or maybe understanding what that aesthetic looks like. Now what she brought, I felt elevated it in many ways as far as casting goes. It's phenomenal. Um, But I don't know if she really understood the genre that she was playing in. I don't know. I don't know. That was my feeling. I felt similarly. uh, And I was digging into some of the other work she's done, and and I stumbled upon the short video she did for Jay-Z's music video, his song, Family Feud. And it's a star-studded affair. It was just last year, 2016, and um, it was coming off the tail end of you know, Lemonade and and everyone's discussions about Becky and all these different aspects of Beyonce's life being put out in the public, but she's a main feature in the in the short film. And, you know, you've got yeah, you've got all sorts of Michael B. Jordan's in it, Thandie Newton's in it, just tons of people. And essentially it's an alternate world, like a fantasy world that's governed by women. Um and it's looking into that future, and there's obviously a lot of um, sci-fi elements. They never go into it. It's a short. It's a short video, but I could see her beginning to play with um, special imaging, different camera work that you, I then saw repeated a little bit, um, or the vision of it in Wrinkle, and 
yeah, before before I saw that music video or that music short, I hadn't imagined her in any way, shape, or form as any kind of fantasy director, um, let alone live action. It's, but it was worth seeing, and I, I appreciated it. It was the first time that she had worked with Storm Reed, which we will talk about in a little while. And, you know, um, Mindy was in it as well. So Mindy was my favorite in it. Yeah. So there were some brand new moments, I think, for – and maybe she was friends with them already, but it was cool to see her have that experience with them before um, they actually went into filming for Wrinkle. Well, a lot of the people from Selma were involved in Wrinkle. You'll have to forgive me, Internet. I'm terrible with names, and I didn't write them down. But there was, like, numerous people that were involved on both projects, which I also found interesting. It just, to me, seems like, I guess – in this time for me, I'm less concerned of like, oh, are you a fantasy director? Is that what you're well-versed in? Because what I was taking, taken with, which is part of what the novel is about, is just that like general theme of love and how that like drives everything forward. Yeah, so I think it's like the perfect time for someone like her to take on this type of a film because it's just so pertinent in our real lives but anyway yeah I thought it was interesting that like she and Oprah were both in Selma together working on that and that Oprah hopped on this which Oprah like fine she was in it whatever Oprah's a person Oprah's a person Oprah she is was, a, an Oprah yeah she's an Oprah she was fine in it <laughs> nothing groundbreaking for me with Oprah but I thought it was interesting that like the same team of people worked on both projects and just this whole like civil rights stories that haven't been told correctly or by the right people ever in our history like people like that banding together and being like hey let's talk about history and then with the love theme in it I think it's also talking about moving that conversation forward totally I completely agree I think that and that is obviously a huge theme in the book what was different for me in the book is that I felt that Madeline held science and love in the same hand and spent equal time with those things, which I didn't feel happened in the film, or I wanted more science. Um, My experience reading the book, the message of love was not as pervasive and on the nose as it was in the film. And so it was this dive into the science fiction fantasy world that I was just gobbling up because I just loved that genre to begin with. And then she hit me with love, you know? So that that hit, that transition was really powerful in the book. And it was there from the very beginning in the movie, which is not a bad thing. We can, I would love to talk about love for hours. So it's a very, <laughs> it's a minor critique, but it's something that I loved in the book that was lacking in the film for me. And I haven't read the book also. So that is something where I like have no context. I was just a blind viewer of the movie. I appreciated uh, what Ava had to say in an interview uh, uh, with The View. She was discussing characterization with the hosts and her decision to cast Storm. And one of the hosts said that it was interesting to her, primarily because her daughter was so excited to have that identification with a heroine, with a, a hero on screen that looked like her. But when she and her daughter had read the book, she was very clearly white to them. But Ava said that when she read the book, um, Meg was black. 
she wasn't white. And so it's all about your perception and all about how you're holding these visuals and these identifiers um, and where you take them personally. And that's, of course, going to be very different for each person. Um, I found that to be probably a leading reason why ultimately we don't want skin color to even be a factor, but we need representation right now. We, we need inclusivity. And that was just the two-sided coin. I loved, I loved seeing and hearing um, that discussion. It was so simple and straightforward. And so strategic, like the conversation of Storm's hair tucked into the dialogue. Like that's huge right now. That's huge conversation going on. Like don't touch my hair. I loved that moment. And I loved the way Storm handled it. Not like a 12-year-old girl. Like she is wise beyond her years, just in her nuance and her acting. I loved that whole that whole part of the film. Yeah. Yeah. She is definitely like blew it out of the water for sure. <sighs> She's so cool. Yeah. She's the reason to see it, which mm-hmm. was Stacy's other reason that I'm stealing right now. That was also, yeah, one of my reasons to see because she's phenomenal. I'm excited to watch her grow up. One thing that I'm sad about is the lack of Ant Beast. Um, from the source material, which is a character, Cassidy, who, do you know about this character? I do. I read, I read about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I she do was. not know Ant Beast, unfortunately. Know. I know her personally. We're Lucky. friends. <laughs> In the book, her struggle with losing her innocence as far as realizing that her dad can't fix everything was a longer chunk um, and Aunt Beast was a part of that and was there for Meg when her father couldn't be because Meg was struggling. And she was also physically not well. Like she was about to die. She was paralyzed from going through, I'm sorry, from tessering. She was about to die. And so Aunt Beast is this tentacled creature that I completely understand visually is impossible to like show her being swaddled by this tentacled creature. But I was very bummed. I just loved Aunt Beast. And I'm just using this platform to talk about my feelings about that. That's a good point to bring up because as someone who didn't read the book, Storm's whole emotional journey was like so isolated, almost to the point of like a little ridiculous for a girl her age. Like she didn't talk to her mom about like She wasn't talking to anybody about it. But then every other character was like, oh, well, do you not have enough love in your heart to test her with us? And so it would have been nice to have somebody bridging that gap, except for the one moment when Oprah was like, be all that you can be. I don't remember exactly. Be a warrior. Yeah. And that was really the only moment she got of support, I feel like. Zach Galifianakis's character kind of did it too, I guess. But like in a hollow way, you know, it felt like, her whole journey of like sadness was one where people were looking at her kind of, or the boy, I guess, and the brother were looking at her like, you're great. But she was just like self-loathing. I don't know. It was just like a very isolated part of the storyline that it would have been nice to have some sort of dialogue or interaction with that instead of just having her be this kind of like downer of the gang the whole time until the very end. What I found was that there was a specific balance struck between the physical journey and the emotional journey achieved in the book, but not so much in the film itself. Uh, A lot of focus 
um, fell to the Mrs. W's and the act of tessering through their abilities uh, versus the journey that Meg goes on um, as a young woman and also um, as the daughter of a father who's disappeared and is potentially being held captive. I felt like that wasn't, that balance was not struck. Uh, We only got uh, Meg's emotional journey. Um, We didn't feel the messiness or the time that goes by, the fatigue. Uh, It's grimy. The book really makes you think that anybody could die at any moment. And it's definitely uh, a multidimensional story when it comes from the voice of the book, um, extending to universal themes. And you get those universal themes in the film, but then it kind of stops on those themes and, and it reiterates those themes and and that becomes the point versus Meg. Um, it becomes a story for everyone. Um, you know, whether you're a 12-year-old girl or whether you're a 30-year-old woman, like I was when I read this for the first time last year, um, those universal themes stick with you because you're constantly trying to learn who you are and grow and, and become that person that has faith in who they are and and their pursuit of life or just their pursuit of helping others. I don't feel like the, the film was able to achieve that on a personal level through Meg's characterization um, as much as it was a, like a beacon or like shouting out into the void, this is what we all need to be. We all need to self-actualize. It's okay. You can do it. Uh, that wasn't the message I received from the book. No, it was like too quick. And of course, that's probably one of the hardest things to do is like get inside a character's brain on screen. That's probably always like one of the main complaints when adapting a story. But yeah, I really wish they could have taken a little bit more time in focusing on the balance of it instead of like the W's are like taking care of everything until they're just cutting you off and leaving you. I don't know. Yeah, it was just a little abrupt where it was like, we're on the journey and now we're at the end of the journey for another 30 minutes. Like we've reached the end. And they had all the components to to go there and get inside her head because Storm Reed is such a phenomenal, nuanced actor. I felt that they had the tools. Um, they spent a lot of time setting up the father and giving him more screen time, whereas in the book you don't see the father until the end. Um, and maybe had they followed the model of the book, which I felt after I read the book, I was like, wow, this is going to be so easy to adapt to a screenplay. This is, it doesn't jump in time. It's just really straightforward. And they, they didn't, they, they felt they really needed to, um, show how much the father loved the daughter instead of just relying on the, the daughter's emotions, which are are powerful enough. And he like left, he was able to test her the first time because of love. Like that's what the visuals communicated and they never came back to that. He, I don't know, like the father in the movie was a little like desperate and distant for like the amount of love the daughter held for her dad. His whole entire response to everything. Yeah, it was a little lackluster, I guess, towards the end. I also found that the theme of imperfect parenting or parents that are struggling, uh, became a pretty dominant uh, focus for these characters, specifically uh, both Dr. Murray's Alex and Kate. Uh, And for Alex, Dr. Alex Murray, you know, he ends up wanting to leave without George Wallace, and that becomes a a hard no for Meg. And 
that's obviously a flaw. He had a hard time, like you were saying, even just navigating um, his the love factor. Like love helped him test her. He was able to see the wavelength, that frequency he needed to see in order to have the tesser appear. And it had happened right after he saw Kate, his wife, with their new baby, new baby boy, Charles Wallace. Uh, but it never returns to that, exactly what you were saying, Cassidy. At the very end, I, at the very least, would have expected her to ask where the hell he was or have some sort of emotional response that wasn't just, my darling husband, you've returned to me. I didn't find that their relationship had been set up in such a capacity that we believed without a shadow of a doubt that she believed that he was lost in the universe and that it was a total cosmic failure that he was gone. We didn't have necessarily enough relationship information to draw that connection for them. Um, so I think realistically, she could very well have said, where have you been? What the fuck have you been doing? And <laughs> we, we would have believed her. I mean, there's still going to be a piece of you, no matter how much you believe in your heart of hearts that they are coming back to you, that they really are lost. There's still going to be that piece of you that's like, what the fuck? And that brings me back to my issue of this being an afternoon jaunt Instead of having the journey that was so specifically described, harrowingly so in the book, um, this film was turned into a star-studded affair with a big piece of kale and a whole lot of Oprah. That piece of kale, like, boo. Why? I am so bummed about that because something that I think is interesting about kale, which in the book is a centaur, it's is a that centaur it's in a the male it's an androgynous, ambiguous-looking centaur. Mrs. Um, What's-It turns into a male centaur, and then they fly above. It's way more scary, too. First of all, the um, Calvin doesn't fall. They go, they break the stratosphere, and they have to breathe into flowers in order to survive. It's so the cool. The flowers were the best visuals, too. Oh, so like, they're why so much cooler they, in the book. And that that is... My reason not to see it is that fucking piece of flying kale. If you're going to do a piece of flying foliage, fine. That's okay. But, like, do it better. I'm know? just trying like, to understand why, because she didn't speak. So at first when I saw the kale, I was like, oh, Reese is going to, like, talk, and they want her to have her voice. Okay, fine. So they made it look more feminine. But then they didn't even speak. She didn't speak at all. Why did they even give it? Yeah, like, why? I just don't. It was... It was changing it for the sake of changing it, which is so weird. I'm sorry, like centaur versus flying kale. Like we can watch flying kale on a windy day in the fall. Yeah, especially in this area that we live in, which is the Pacific Northwest. I have kale in my fridge right now. I'm I can throw it in the air. Honestly, a little Lincoln glad time. I didn't know that it was supposed to be a centaur because that moment I think mm -hmm. I would have just checked out if I would have known because I was already having a hard time visually there, especially with a movie with this budget, you know? It's like they really, that was terrible. That was awful. I don't know, that was so awful. What were you doing, Disney? But think about how they're gonna monetize this. I bet they're going to make like little plastic pieces of kale and sell them for like $30. But I still think there were changes made that don't make sense. For instance, the Happy Medium's lair. That, why? I didn't understand at all why they chose to have it be this balancing like hot rock 
tavern is just another way of showcasing how Meg is off balance with herself. It's so so on the nose. And and that was like too heavy handed. The Meg being off balance, like they made her so off balance, she was almost confusing as a lead character in a way. Like Storm did an incredible job and she did a great job acting. But what a confusing thing to do with a lead character to just continue to like diss her and then the boys be like, oh, poor Meg, poor sad Meg. Which in turn just disses the audience, not respecting our intelligence to delve into this character. And maybe that's a little bit of what critics are talking about when they say that they're hung up on Meg's characterization. I didn't get enough of her, I guess, personally. And in some ways, I got too much of what they chose to give me of Meg. And the whole idea of women as teachers, that theme, I mean, you saw it when Meg just began to regurgitate these words that the Mrs. W's would say. Um, For the first time, she could say thank you to a compliment because Mrs. Witch had taught her to say thank you when someone compliments you. And the same could be said for Mrs. What's It when she says, I'm underwhelmed. I did really want to talk about the intense practical effect discrepancies, which really bothered me and had a hard time with because of the amount of money that was spent. I, I'm not quite sure. Maybe you didn't notice or maybe I'm just caught up on something of my own accord. But when Meg enters the tesser at the end and she's in slow motion, her hair is still in full motion. It's not in slow motion and it bothered me like crazy, but not as much as when you go to the close-up of her face and she's got glitter in her eyes and it's streaming backward. And then um, in the reverse shot, there is no glitter coming off of her body in any way, shape, or form. And it was so specific. And I don't know how that even happens in a big budget film like this. I Did mean, you this notice is, any? This is where Stacy's point rings true i think with a team that took on fantasy that maybe wasn't like ready to take on fantasy writing because i think in writing fantasy it's writing fantasy but then like as you're writing tying in visuals every step of the way and understanding what that means and i can't stress the piece of kale enough like what are you doing (laughs) and that was bad like to me that was my biggest thing that like pulled me out of it. I loved the flowers like until she turned into that stupid vegetable. It was fine. But even like the CG on that was cheaply done. It wasn't good CG and the character design was not well done. It was not well done for the budget that they had. And really that was like one of the only moments that CG was like really, really happening. Except yeah, at the very end, I guess there's moments throughout where the CG is going for it, but If you're going to do CG, do it right, because we're not going to redo what was that terrible movie, like 1000 BC or whatever that came out. Yeah. Like, where it just, like, the visuals do, and fantasy take you out of it if you don't do it right. And I'm now curious to know, like, who was the artistic director on this? Like, who was in charge of that? Oh, right here. And what else have they done? The visual effects supervisor was Rich McBride. Uh production designer was Naomi Shohan. Fantasy is so visual. If your continuity is not on par, it's going to suffer. He did the visual effects on Avatar. What? Hashtag not Avatar. Hashtag not Avatar. Hashtag do better. Rich. Wow. Bride. Richard. Maybe, maybe, again, all this money went to the actors. That's kind of, I think you're... I think that's right. Because there were so many big names. Zach Galifianakis didn't need to be the happy medium 
I liked the the oh, way they depicted. Funny, oh. I thought he was funny, but again, like they depicted. I liked the depiction of the happy medium in the book. Yes. Um, it's not that I liked it more. It's just again they made all these money grabbing choices. It feels I mean, to me it that wasn't way. even Zach Galifianakis. It's Reese Witherspoon and Oprah. That's where the budget went. As far as money, but I mean, there's so many name big names. Attached. Like Zach is a huge mm-hmm. is a huge name now. Um, so yeah, there's just huge big players chris pine like they're all huge is chris pine the dad huh? who's the dad yeah because oh, of star He's trek the dad. yeah so it his wonder name. woman he was just in wonder woman yep. um yeah i'm yeah i was a little underwhelmed by the casting and i think fantasy is the perfect genre to like bring up unknown actors like that is the genre to do it well yeah because you have a built-in audience especially with a book like this you had a built-in audience you could have done a lot you already had them. a little. Like and, I mean, thirty-five million dollars to a hundred and three million. And why Oprah? You know, like I think it is because they work together on Selma. I mean, I loved Oprah. I I do love Oprah, but it was the way they were all handled. Like it could have it could have been better. Yeah, I love Oprah too, but in that casting choice, I didn't care either way. Which me to me means the performance wasn't that big of a deal I don't know for me I was just like it was kind of almost an eye roll that Oprah was in it a little bit because yeah they just didn't need to do that that was just like fanfare on top of a good story that drowned it out a little bit yeah like you said Rochelle it it was about star-studded glamour which is also I'm sure why they removed her braces because in the book she has braces. She <gasps> cuts her hand on her I braces. I forgot. Oh, my word. Why didn't they, she have braces? Because that's not pretty. Oh, man. Is glamoured. That was something that I noticed right away. The minute she smiled, I was like, oh, she doesn't have braces. And I, I really remembered the braces because she talks a lot about it in the book. It's a part of what makes her self-conscious. Right. And there's a moment where her hand hits her face and her she cuts her skin on her braces. <laughs> They're a part of the book. So, you know, Disney glamour. Something I both enjoyed and did not enjoy, and you can tell me, Stacy, if this was in the book, I'm having a hard time remembering, but the Mrs. W's leave Meg with three tools. Mrs. Who gives her her glasses, which allows her to see beyond what is thought to be there. Uh, Mrs. What's-It gives her the gifts of her faults, which I love. And Mrs. Witch offers her command, which is stay together. Um... For me, my command, the stay together piece that Mrs. Witch extends to Meg doesn't come through as obviously. And since the movie is hampered with on the nose, obvious um, theme and moral and message and execution, I actually found myself struggling to know how she exercised that. I think it was when her dad was going to leave without Charles Wallace and she said, no, we have to all stay together or something to that effect. But did either of you have any response to those tools at all? Did they stick out to you? They In the movie, they weren't as precious, I felt, as they were in the book, or like vitally important as they were in the book. Yeah, I think that Mrs. What's Gift, The Gift of Your Faults, was a rare piece of poignancy that I plucked out and kind of held on to tightly because I wanted so much more of that. It was so, it just, it resonated the, the book. And you know... 
they list the writers of this screenplay as writers. No one's listed as an adapt, like someone has not ad- adapted this. This is not an adapted piece. They are listed as writers. That could be something that maybe should have been addressed. Why didn't we adapt this? Why did we decide to write this? Well, and like, yeah, when you, even with like the Harry Potter movies, you know, it's like hard enough to adapt those books, but they were at least like adapted enough that as a viewer, you could think like, oh, dang, they left this part out. There wasn't enough time. Whereas like they're not changing the story or adding, I mean, maybe they did that. I haven't researched that in the way we're doing this, but I would think that would be frustrating to the audience, which is the audience because of the novel, right? Like that's the audience. And so how frustrating to go in with like that background knowledge and then have people just kind of rewrite it for the screen. Have either of you seen the television series? No. No, I read about it. But the producer for the television series was one of the producers for Mm -hmm. the feature film, right, Stacey? Yeah, Catherine Hand. And this has been the passion piece of her life. She read this book as a kid and it's what made her want to make movies is the story. And so it's been her life's pursuit to get here. And she got to meet the author and talk to the author. Um, And she recognizes that the television adaptation was not what anyone wanted because of their limitations in their budget. Um, So in this one, you know, the budget wasn't an issue in this version. And she got to see more of her vision executed than she did in, I can't even remember when that was adapted so long ago. I almost wonder if it got a little drowned by having such a large budget and they were worried about like the wrong elements of this film instead of like the heart of the story, you know? Well, I think again, it comes back. I, I feel just the team not understanding the genre. Does anyone know how much Wonder Woman cost? I don't know. That's a good question. But I don't, I'm struggling to understand what they spent a hundred million dollars on. Exactly. The kale. The kale. And the cast? The cast. It was the cast. Something that um, I think is tough in this genre of fantasy is when you really root it in pop culture and you make a lot of references, um, especially with the soundtrack. I think when you timestamp it, it no longer becomes fantasy because fantasy is timeless and it, it shouldn't be rooted to something that we so closely understand like right now. And so... For me, that is just a misunderstanding of the, what the genre can do. And it was full of it. It was full of re- pop culture references. And a lot of them I liked and yeah. laughed. Like I loved the, the Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, <laughs> and Outcast references. I don't know. I think that that has something maybe to do with the angst and the frustration. It's just all wrapped in not understanding how to adapt this in a way that's not silly. It almost seems like they took it as... And again, I find it really interesting, given um, DuVernay's previous work, that they took this timeless story that everyone holds so close to their heart, if you've read it, and turned it into a political statement. What do you mean by political statement? It could have been hijacked for more of a political statement. And I guess I, I come to that possible conclusion, and I guess it's just an idea to throw out because of the Oscars a little bit too. It's just like what Hollywood is saying right now. And honestly, I don't think, I don't think they give a shit right now as far as like with this piece maybe with preserving like this childhood artifact of amazing literature. They're more interested in being like, 
black lives matter women matter the love matters stop like othering everyone you know like i think you know i mean i think that's why the shape of water won as much as it won too we're not going down that rabbit hole right now, but like I feel like it's something like political that's happening in Hollywood where maybe the storytelling is falling a little bit off because they're sacrificing it in order to make a different statement. But I don't think that having black people present or talking about love or women needs to be now. Like I think those themes can still be timeless things to talk about. For me, the thing that made it now was just the the mixtape soundtrack you know what I mean for me it wasn't the casting or anything like that that made it political um in my opinion I think Shape of Water is a a different story and I completely agree I think it's political in the fact she didn't cast like they were written as white characters and they were cast as an array of different cultures even Charles Wallace is I, he I don't even know actually what Charles Wallace he's Filipino. is he's Filipino he's Filipino so I think I, it's become a political element. It shouldn't be one. No, but and I totally agree. One. And yeah. I just think that's it's like a sacrifice right now that's happening in Hollywood as far as storytelling versus like what they want to say politically. Or it's just something I feel as though I've observed in like other avenues of Hollywood lately where I find myself wondering, like, Shape of Water is the best example. Like, why did that film win so many things? Personally, for me, as far as, like, storytelling and pacing goes. But it did because people are making a statement. And I wonder if, like, part of the problems where Wrinkle in Time is falling short is because the focus is on, like, what can we do politically to talk to our audience about our current situation in America? especially with this team that's done 13th and Selma. Like, that's already something that they're passionate about. So, and not that that is good or bad. I just think that that could be possibly, like, in part of where the storytelling fell a little bit short because their focus was somewhere else. Could be. I definitely interpreted that as just seeing this as a story for kids, which is not a bad thing at all. And... Um, we're in a world where <laughs> superhero movies are rated R. You know, we have these fantasies for adults. So I think that is also where I'm coming from. So I have these expectations. Like, I also want this to be for me when that was not the agenda, I think, of the team. It was never for me. No, it's And they're going to make sure that these themes are on the nose so that kids understand. Yeah. Again, um, it's like a vehicle for this political conversation whether on a level for kids right whether yeah it's political or not I think she was very much making it about kids which is amazing like it's not for me and that's great and Wonder Woman was 149 million dollars okay that's why it's so much more pretty so I'm sorry I'm a Wonder Woman fan um I think that that point makes a lot of sense to me and it resonates in a slightly different way because this film is made for kids of today. A Wrinkle in Time was made for all children. And I think that that is the piece that's missing for me. I love the universal message of love. It needs to be in everything. I, I love that it's at the forefront. I do think it, it was a bit badgering. Ultimately, for me, what took away from this story was the screen time for the stars so I didn't get to see the story of Meg unfold. 
in a, a grueling, dangerous way that would have honored the book. And the actual struggle that we all go through to self-actualize, it doesn't happen in an afternoon. Okay, so let's talk about takeaways. Moving forward, what are you going to remember about this film or what did it make you think about film in general? Um, I'm tired of Hollywood big budgets going to like the same people as far as like the actors go. That was something a little underwhelming. And Stacy had told me that they're calling it Oprah's Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, again, Storm is such an amazing actress. Like, I want her to be the focus. I love when action movies can take lesser known actors and really like create a launch pad for them. Thank goodness for DuVernay because I'm happy to have a woman of color as a director. That's fucking awesome. A leap in the right direction. Challenging yourself. Yeah, challenging yourself, but also like do it with people that aren't already like blown up on the positive end of things. There's a lot of glitter. So (laughs) there's that. (laughs) I wanted the science fiction fantasy elements um, to be realized in a different way. But what I love more is that a young black woman is the heroine and little girls get to grow up with this. And so that sort of washes everything away. And, um, and though there are issues, I think, with the adaptation, like big storytelling issues, that right there, it, it sort of eliminates them and, and to a degree makes them moot because this is in another dimension of importance. Again, it's political. Like it's like a it's like breaking the glass ceiling like that in itself is amazing as far as just having different representation coming out of Hollywood and different people for to identify with that aren't white and men, you know, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. I feel weird even like saying that because, yeah, I don't want it to come across as like. I'm white and I like that black people are being cast now. I don't know. It's like hard to talk about, but it is, but it's important. And I'm, I'm glad that young white girls can see these powerful black girls. I like think it's that's important for incredibly it's essential. Incredible. It's it essential is. for all of us to see, um, these women in a position of power who are marginalized in every single way. I mean, and even with how like, yeah, with all, like you said, the storytelling holes just to see, a main character that's a young girl and then a team of women that are helping guide her. You know, like that, it almost feels weird to watch in a theater where I'm like, what's happening? What's happening to me? My heart, what? Ah." So yeah, for all of those reasons, I think it's totally worth seeing and it was well done in that regard because it does make you think about what's going on in the industry. For me, heart plus journey equals actual actualization. And I think the more we partner with Ava and Hollywood supports her vision and other people's vision who are seeking telling stories that have needed to be told for a very long time, looking through the lens of people that have not been heard yet, I think the better balance we're going to find and, and the more evolution to storytelling that we're going to see. Um, and once that occurs and once we get on that track, I mean, it's going to take time. But once we're there, uh, I think we're going to see a whole different era of storytelling. Um, and hopefully, you know, a lot of other things change. 
with it. Well, thank you so much for joining us this month, talking about A Wrinkle in Time. We appreciate you so much. Cassidy's about to eat the microphone. That's how much she loves you. I'm going to eat the microphone with my love for you. So until until next month, it's been real. We'll see you later. I'll talk to you later. See you later. Bye. Catch you on the flip side. This has been a Talking to Crows production. 